Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Vaginal, vaginal. Vaginal, vaginal. Vaginal. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 216 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and Gary was away the other evening, so I had chocolate buttons for my tea. How how very grown up I am. He can never leave me. Isn't that the joy of being a grown up that you can eat chocolate buttons for your tea exactly. if you want to? I know it's not very nutritious though, is it? No, but I mean, like, Lyra can't eat chocolate buttons for a tea, but I can. That's, that's, I've earned my stripes, man. Yeah, like, totally. You know. I remember eating chocolate for breakfast once, and then I was like, yeah, take that, mum. And then about 20 minutes later going, I feel really sick. <laughs> take that, yeah. me. The answer to the question, what's the best thing about being an adult, is that you can eat your pudding before yeah. your dinner. Or just I eat mean... pudding for dinner. Oh, do you, so have, have I actually, like, I've done something quite good? Oh, amazing. Let's flip this yeah. on its head. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's just say, much as we like Gary, and I hope he doesn't leave you. We don't need to depend on him for nutritional advice. Maybe for nutritionally valuable <laughs> advice. Listeners, Hannah once told me that if Gary and I ever split up, she'd be on the phone to him immediately, begging him to come back. <laughs> I really would. I think this has been a very empowering experience for you, Mick. You've uh, you've learned yeah. the joys of adulthood. You know, lovely I stuff. I am woman. Hear me roar. Hear me eat chocolate Hear buttons. Hear me eat chocolate buttons. I don't want to, actually, if it's okay with you. It's a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone have any? No. no. Well, it doesn't matter because we're not in the same house. I'm Hannah Dunleavy <laughs> and I have, yeah, all right, Grandma, finally learned how to internet browse. How's it going? Thank God. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, I was actually a very early adopter of internet banking, got locked out of that account and then could never be bothered or, in fact, was never able to get into it, but now have on my phone and certain people who I owe money to have now, it's just appeared in their account. It was very exciting. You're still at the stage where you demand a text message to know that it's actually happened, though. I enjoy that. Yep. I was so excited, Jen. You nearly got some, even though I didn't know you any. <laughs> but Hannah, I'm delighted for you. I feel like you're both having like a really powerful journey this week. <laughs> Independence is just a short journey away. We're nearly there. <laughs> I'm going to bring it back to my mum now so we can all fall back down to earth with a crash. I'm Jen Offord. And yesterday, my mum claimed to have never known the universal signs for play and pause. Do you mean the little arrow and the sideways equal sign? Yeah, the play sign and the pause uh, yeah, sign. Yeah. She was like, how do I pause this on the TV? I was like, you hit the pause button, mum. She's like, which one's that? I said, the universal pause sign, mum. And she was like, "What? where's that then? I 
The Universal Pass sign, Mum. Did you not have a video? Yes, because she's got a new Sky Q box. So she's like, oh, it's just... No, that's what it is everywhere. It's the she... same everywhere, Mum. Does she know that the Universal sign for record is just the red circle? I don't know, but I'm going to have to have a chat with her, aren't I? Clearly. Yeah. Otherwise, she's going to tape over one of your favourite films. <laughs> yeah, otherwise you're going to get a lot of stuff recorded. And when you go to record something, it will say boxes full. We'll be having words. Coming up, I chat to actress Melanie Zanetti, a.k.a. Chili, about the return of kids and adults' favourite, Bluey. I chat with comedian Eleanor Morton about history, tour guides who couldn't give a fuck and doing an Edinburgh Fringe show when you're internet famous. In Jenny Off The Blocks, I'm celebrating a record haul at the Commonwealth Games and in Rated or Dated, we are leaving our hats and everything else on as we watch 1997's The Full Monty. Speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah is fully nude. But first, the cost of living crisis, a major setback for bullshitters. And Amnesty asks Ukraine, but what were you wearing? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we are not enjoying the new sketch show from the would-be leaders of the Tory party. It's no hit or miss. Mm. Have you seen Rishi's latest video? His latest skit? I haven't. And now you're going to make me watch it. And I don't want to. Don't make me watch it. It's so, so bad. How have we got a candidate who not only is going to tax the poor to give to the rich, but is just open about it? Like, at least Tories in the past have been like, no, we would never do that, and then done it. And he's just like, yeah, seems fair. Oh. Yeah. He manages to make all this stuff that looks really swish, but at the same time looks really shit. Yeah, you've not seen that video, mate. There's no swish. All shit. (laughs) So, Mick, I want to talk about a tweet sent by Agnes Calamard. She's French, so imagine Mickey's pronouncing that with her brilliant French. (laughs) Uh, Merci. (laughs) Agnes is the Secretary General of Amnesty International. But first, before I talk about this tweet, I'm going to have to do some backstory. Are you in? I'm in. Great. So, last week, Amnesty International released a report entitled... Ukrainian fighting tactics endanger civilians. Hmm. In it, Amnesty's staff on the ground in the war-torn country said they had found evidence that, quote, Ukrainian forces have put civilians in harm's way by establishing bases and operating weapons systems in populated residential areas, including in schools and hospitals. Now, I'm very much not on the ground in Ukraine, nor an expert on international law, nor have a fought in a war. But I can say with absolute confidence that there will be things going on in this conflict that may only come to light years later and with the benefit of hindsight be seen as terrible. Absolutely. If you can point me to a war when that hasn't happened, I owe you a bottle of wine mm-hmm. too if you live in Coventry. <laughs> I also understand that the job of Amnesty International is to be impartial, although I could name a few other topics in recent years in which they have absolutely taken aside. Oh, yeah. But let's crack on. The report continued, quote, such tactics violate international humanitarian law and endanger civilians as they turn civilian objects into military targets. The ensuing Russian strikes in populated areas have killed civilians and destroyed civilian infrastructure. 
Um, Is that victim blaming, Mickey? You decide. (laughs) I have decided. Given all that throat clearing I made about being no expert, let me just say this. What's the difference between a civilian and a soldier in Ukraine? I realise that sounds like the setup for a joke. So here's the punchline. Less than six months. (laughs) Why aren't you in Edinburgh? (laughs) (laughs) Lots of people inside and outside of Ukraine weren't happy about this report, not least because Russia seized on it to bolster its propaganda. (laughs) What a surprise. I know. In fact, Kel surprise. Kel surprise. (laughs) The head of Amnesty Ukraine resigned in protest. Which brings me to that tweet. Quote, Ukrainian and Russian social media mobs and trolls, they are all at it today, attacking Amnesty Investigations. This is called war propaganda, disinformation, misinformation. This won't dent our impartiality and won't change the fact. Just a reminder, this isn't a tweet from a petulant 15-year-old or (laughs) Donald Trump. I mean, they're basically the same thing. It's from Agnes Calamard, Secretary General of Amnesty International, decreeing that the only reason that anyone might question the wisdom or morality of this report is stupid or contrary or on someone's payroll. If you can't see the value in publicly criticising Ukraine's attempts to defend itself from an outrageous and ongoing act of aggression by its much larger neighbour, your opinion ain't shit. No, yet. If you think, <laughs> if you think Amnesty just handed Russia another club to hit Ukraine with, you've fallen for misinformation. I mean, just as a reminder, Russia is making so much hay with this report there aren't enough animals to eat it. I'm going to leave you with this: someone who is on the ground and does have an experience of war, Alina Mikhailova, who responded to Kalamard on Twitter with this: "I am a deputy of the Kiev City Council." and a soldier of the armed forces of Ukraine. I'm not a social media mob and troll, and I'm writing to you from a verified account to say that you have a Russian dick in your mouth. Indeed. What is this? This phenomenon? If if anyone disagrees with you, then they're a troll. And it's like, no, no, sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you're not wrong, but people just have a different opinion. But this immediate thing of whether you're a troll, you're a mob, it's a bot, you're right wing. Mm. These just seem to be the go-tos for when someone is disagreed with on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. You're a religious fundamentalist. I mean, I am, but I didn't realise we were going to talk about that on this podcast. I'm not. I'm not. Hannah, do you remember last week when I asked, do Labour voters dream of Gordon Brown? Yes. Well, the former Prime Minister, former Chancellor and my electorate sheep of choice has renewed demands Mm. for an emergency budget and has called for the Cobra Emergency Committee to sit in permanent session to help families very much in the eye of the economic shitstorm. Nah, said Mm -hmm. Boris Johnson, who is very much still Prime Minister. How, 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 It's so upsetting. He's a caretaker Prime Minister, doesn't understand the word care, but, you know, we've had enough evidence Understands the word taker, though. So oh, great. absolutely. So he's halfway there, <laughs> oh, isn't yeah. he? Johnson's insisting that it's up to a future prime minister to decide whether or what measures are required. That is a direct quote. Clearly keen to get back to it after his holidays. Johnson said he had no plans to sit down with Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss to discuss emergency measures. Hard to believe we've only been blessed with this workshy footnote for just two and a half years. Feels a lot longer, doesn't it, Hannah? God, yeah, it really does. 
Passing the book while shrugging his shoulders is something Johnson excels at. But while he and his missus were enjoying the soothing energies of a mountain villa in Slovenia, the Bank of England forecast 13% inflation in autumn, while analysts said average household energy bills could reach around £3,600, with mortgage bills going up due to the interest rate rise to 1.75%. Prices are currently rising faster than they have for 40 years. I'm financially nervous about all of that and I'm far from being on the breadline. So many people are. Pay rises are failing to keep any sort of pace with inflation, meaning that although the number of people in employment has risen, UK workers are suffering the worst pay squeeze in modern history. Although I've got to add here, it's very much a tale of two labour markets. City workers received double digit wage rises, while people on the lowest incomes were paid annual increases of just 1% in the last year. As ever, maths isn't my forte, but fucking hell, it doesn't need to be to see the inequality there. Downing Street is pointing to the government's energy bill support scheme, which provides a £400 discount on bills in October for every household, a 650 quid means-tested one-off payment to 8 million low-income households, £150 for those on disability benefits and £300 for pensioners. But this was designed when the forecast for the October price cap was £2,800, not the now forecast £3,600. That is a substantial amount that it's gone up. I don't really understand that either because presumably in the those 8 million low-income households, a lot of them are already going to be on disability benefits or pensioners. Yeah. What are they getting, the 650 or the 150? They're getting lumped in so the numbers look better for the Tory party, Hannah. I think that's what they're getting. Uh, Soon I can trust are both talking tax cuts as a way to tackle the cost of living crisis. But as Gordon Brown points out, those tax cuts will not benefit the people who are really poor. According to Natalie Sini, chair of the Cash Action Group, people are, quote, literally counting the pennies as they get to grips with rising prices, with more people going back to cash to keep tighter control on their spending. In fact, post offices handled £801 million in personal cash withdrawals in July, the most since records began five years ago, and up more than 20% from a year earlier. Sini said, if you've only got 30 quid to last you the week, I love that she talks like I do. I'm sure she probably said it a lot nicer than that. Sini said, if you've only got £30 to last you the week, holding that in notes and coins is still the most effective way of budgeting and controlling how much you spend. It is also a way around having money when you have no money. I can say this as someone who used to do this very thing myself. Okay, so you go to the bank and you have £100 in there and you know that there is going to be... £20 direct debit coming out and all of these things before payday. But you Mm. also have no money to eat or put petrol in your car. So you draw the £100 out because your bank is way more likely to honour a direct debit and let you go into debt than it is to pay cash out at a cash point machine at that stage. Yeah, yeah. And therefore you are going into debt. You've gone into your overdraft, which you have to pay back. And you're also probably going to incur some sort of fee for going overdrawn, although nowadays those fees are much lower than they used to be. It used to be £35 a pop for me to go overdrawn. Yeah. yeah. There was a cap on it, but it was actually better because then at least I had cash to buy food with or buy mm-hmm. petrol with. Good tip. Hmm. It's a short-term tip when you need to get somewhere and you need the bus fare or the train fare. You know, you need to eat. It is a short-term fix, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if, yeah, 
if people are worth short-term thinking at the minute. Yeah, exactly. I think short-term is all a lot of people have quite understandably got at the moment. And, you know, there is no long-term plan. We're seeing reports of these huge, obscene profits made by energy companies. And yet Sunak and Trust, one of whom will be Prime Minister in like a few months, have no plans to to make them cap that, to challenge them on that. They are both very much up for the fat caps getting fatter. So short term is all people have got. It's a long term short term. Mm, fucking hell. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I'm not in that situation anymore. And I'm so grateful of it. Yes, yeah, the same. I mean, I've not been in that situation for a long time and very grateful of it, but I certainly remember it because it leaves its fucking scars. So, Mick, it's that time in the podcast where I tell you a story about a horse that can reply to emails. Yes, please. Or my hometown sporting triumph. Okay. Or, in this case, about Alex Jones, not the nice one, the shit one, getting <laughs> his just desserts. Were they served by a horse? I mean, come <laughs> on. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know who Alex Jones, InfoWars creator, is, here's a wee rundown. You know those bulging temple veins that some people get? Yeah. Imagine one of those became sentient and started hawking shit ideas, conspiracy theories and dodgy nutritional supplements at 9,000 decibels on the internet. Watching <laughs> Alex Jones for any length of time seems like the closest you can get to having a heart attack without actually having a heart attack. <laughs> that is such a good description. It always makes me feel like I'm having a funny turn. <laughs> yeah. Well, last week, a jury in Austin, Texas, concluded that Jones should pay $45.2 million in punitive damages to the parents of a victim of the Sandy Hook Elementary School mass shooting over his promotion of false conspiracy theories that the massacre was a hoax. Just a reminder, because it is hard to keep up, yeah. that is the school shooting that occurred in December 2012 in Connecticut. 20 of the victims were children aged 6 or 7, and the remaining 6 were adult staff members. I haven't really got time to go into the full case here. I'd suggest, as I have before, and I likely will again, that everybody read Elizabeth Williamson's book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. And listen out for an interview on this very podcast that will, fingers crossed, be happening soon. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, this is very good news. And yes. there are more court cases involving Jones pending. And I say this as a fan of free speech. Because, as you know, I'm not a free speech absolutist. And as I'm often asked where the line is, let me say, if you're tormenting grieving parents, resulting in financial and, frankly, God knows who can imagine how much emotional trauma, mm, yeah. calling them liars and encouraging others to do so, leading to them being harassed in the street and receiving mail demanding their children's bullet-ridden bodies be exhumed... <sighs> And you do this in order to advance the political agenda and sell more super male vitality pills. Well, yeah, that's pretty far over the line. Absolutely. Fucking hell. But good news. I, I'm, ex I'm excited for that news because I think it's excellent, even though there were no animals involved, Hannah. Yeah, well, there is one animal, obviously. That oh. sweaty walrus, Alex <laughs> Jones. Oh, I feel bad for walruses. Walry? Yeah, I retract that. Apologies. <laughs> Apologies to all our walrus listeners. <laughs> yeah, I know that we have a big listenership amongst that community. Arr, arr, 
Oh, is that a seal? Okay. What noise does a walrus make? More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where it's potentially not even going to be the sexism that makes Hannah feel queasy. Because we're going to start by talking about the TikTok sensation that is vabbing. Hannah, with the extra clue that I fucking love a portmanteau, any guesses what vabbing might be? I don't want to think about it. I mean, it's got a V, so that must stand for vagina, because it always does, like vajazzle and those (laughs) things. Oh, she's got the smarts. Yeah, yeah, let's put it this way. You can run out of perfume when it's in a bottle, but not when it's straight from your Lady Cave of Mystery and Wonder. Dip, 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 dab, dab, dab. Mate attracting pheromones straight from your vagina to your pulse points. I don't like it. Okay, the hashtag vabbing perfume might have more than 13 million views on TikTok and counting, but this is not a new pheromone phenomenon. A pheronomomon? <laughs> That's brilliant, Mickey. Five points to you. <laughs> yeah, let's keep the portmanteau count high. In a piece in The Independent, Olivia Petter traces it back to either a podcast in 2018 or a book from 2019. However, as I've mentioned previously on the pod, I started my journal career, illustrious start to my journal <laughs> career in fact, as a sexpert for Lads Mag's heady pre-feminist days of counting nipples. And as long ago as 24 years, my go-to sex and relationship guru of the time, Tracy Cox, see what you do with the surname there, <laughs> was suggesting this as a way of spicing things up for any couples a bit musty in the sauce department. She just didn't call it vabbing. In fact, I'm going to bet for as long as women have had vaginas, fingers and a little bit behind their ears, this has been happening. There's nothing new out there, people. On a little tangential note there, she also once said to me, there's four positions and everything else is just a variation of a theme. And she's right. Yeah. Same with literature. But anyway. <laughs> Hannah likes to do a little bit of light reading with her light afternoon uh, in Playgrounds. <laughs> no, what I mean is there's only like four stories in the world and everything's a variation on a theme. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's true. Anyway, back to Vabin. It's just Please a natu- don't. <laughs> it's just a natural smell, right? We're animals, and in the animal kingdom, pheromones are a key part of communication. Christ knows, perfume companies have been using it as a sell point for donkeys. <laughs> you mean donkeys' ears, don't you? I do, yeah. Yeah, I thought you meant for literal donkeys. <laughs> What would perfume for donkeys smell like? No, no, no. I meant if you perfume companies were making donkeys smell like women's vaginas, so you'd buy them more commonly. Hannah, I think after we finish recording this, we should see if there's a gap in the market because... There is a donkey sanctuary near me. Shall I pop up there and see what happens? Listeners, don't you dare try and steal our money-making scheme. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's where the sexism comes in, not the donkeys, the smell. Because even the most yes women of us present company included, tend to get a case of the icks when talking about vaginal secretions and smells. And we bloody well shouldn't. We've called nonsense on vaginal steaming and unnecessary to the point of dangerous specialist cleansers because the vagina is a miracle of self-cleansing. Go, Lady Chamber, go! (laughs) Yeah, yeah, vaginas have a scent and it's different for each individual and it changes throughout the menstrual cycle. Perfectly normal. And yet... The ridiculous notion that vaginas are stinky continues. 
In fact, for all of the TikTokers embracing vabbing, the biggest use of the hashtag has been a backlash to it, based very much on the long-running smear campaign against women's bodies. Again, that's an odd choice. <laughs> it's a very thought-out choice of words, Hannah. <laughs> the smear campaign, you go, right, you have your smear, and then they say, we don't like women's bodies. Yeah, I mean, I'm having a smear tomorrow, so I'll report back what the donkey says. So, fab <laughs> if you won't, don't if it's not your bag, but please don't feel embarrassed about your vagina perfume and stay tuned for news of vagina-scented perfume for donkeys <laughs> heading to a sanctuary near you very soon. Yeah, I mean, I need to be clear, I'm not gippy about this because it's because it's to do with lady gardens i'm gippy about this because basically anything that emerges from the human body repulses me (laughs) it's a broad gamut (laughs) except babies but what babies come with is also repulsive yeah yeah that's true don't dab that behind your ears or do sure body i am joined by the actress melanie zanetti aka the voice of Chili in the cartoon series Bluey. So, Melanie, I'm I'm genuinely a bit hyped to be doing this interview. A lot of parents listening to this, as well as I'm sure aunties, uncles, etc., etc., will be familiar with Bluey. But for anyone who isn't, I mean, who are they? But for anyone who isn't, how would you describe it? Bluey is a animation about a family of blue healers. Each episode is about seven minutes and it's centered around creative play and the world that this the healer family inhabit. I've got to try not to fangirl you too much here because I have a two-year-old, <laughs> uh, a two-year-old daughter. Oh, perfect age. So my mum helps out a lot as well with my daughter and we both agree that Bluey is one of our favourites and it is actually my favourite. Sorry, hey Dougie, you're a close second, but it yes. is it is my favourite. <laughs> and the reason for that is that it is quite clearly aimed at adults as well in that the show's creators seem to me to have very obviously thought about all of those parents watching, all of those carers, all of those other people and enduring hours of kids' TV programmes that maybe are not that interesting to them. That's how it seems to me. Anyway, is that, do you think that's a, a fair reflection? Oh, absolutely. Joe, who's the writer, he's the writer-creator of Louie, he has such an incredible ability of tuning into that age group of that family, not just the kids, but also the experience of the parents. And I think that's why it's become so universally loved for all the parents and children who are watching it, um, because there's really something for everyone. And it's, it has beautiful messages without being didactic and shoving anything down your throat. And the characters are funny and true to life, both for, you know, the preschool age that these kids are at and for the parents. Can you tell us a little bit about Chili? Because one of the wonderful, subtle touches that I love in Bluey is that these little things that are clearly designed for the adults and and not for the kids because, you know, a two-year-old or whatever is not really going to understand this. But, like, for example, Chili works in airport security. 
and Bandit, who's, who's Chili's husband, partner, Bluey and Bingo's dad, is an archaeologist, which I think is hilarious. Like, that's, that's really <laughs> funny that you've got these dogs <laughs> who, who have these professions. But also, Chili is the more serious one. They've got, like, quite a nice dynamic to their relationship. She's the more serious. Dad is a bit more silly and lots of fun. They both make me aspire to be a better parent. I'm not going to lie to you. They're so brilliant. But... It's fair to say that dad is is like probably the more fun one. What is it like playing Chili next to David McCormack as Bandit? Well, what's really interesting is we don't record together. We record separately. And Dave and I have never met in real life. Wow. Yeah. We've talked on the phone a number of times, but he lives in a different state and Mm -hmm. I'm often um, overseas working in different countries. So uh, we haven't met IRL yet. So it's it's interesting that like, I don't know if you'd agree, but there's some really great chemistry between Bandit and Chile. But I think a lot of that's in the writing and in the how they direct us and, and then put it together. So... For me, yeah, I I don't get to actually work with the other voice artists, but I love working on these scripts. Chili is just such a a warm and wryly funny. And I think as the seasons progress, you see more of her in play with the kids that you don't necessarily see as much in season one. I think there's a few more dimensions to all of the characters that you get to see more of. So I'm, I'm excited for the UK and everyone else to see season three. One of the other very lovely and relatable touches is that Chili seems to me, she's carrying a lot of what we would call the mental load, right? So she's the one that thinks about the practical things. She knows like mm-hmm. what dad should be taking swimming with the kids. And then he's like, oh yeah, whatever, mm-hmm. we'll just do that. I'll just wing it, see what happens. And, and Chili's like, oh God. And there's a kind of, a bit of an air of exasperation to her that is very relatable, <laughs> I think, as, <laughs> as a mother and as a woman. I guess that is a deliberate thing by the creators of this, by the writers of this. They've made it very relatable, I think, from a kind of relationships angle as well. I think on so many levels, um, they've made this show relatable in terms of the dynamics between the parents. Although I do really like that in terms of domestic labour, we see probably more equality than we see in a lot of real relationships i also really like how at the beginning when when bluey and first came out a lot of people assumed that bluey was a boy yes because we just assumed that the protagonist is going to be a boy especially if we've got a little sister and that's going to be a girl Mm -hmm. you have one out of each and people got so shocked because there wasn't any indication of like long eyelashes or bows or skirts but i thought it was so wonderful that we had this female protagonist that is just I was going to say human, but they're not humans, they're dogs. It's just a dog that everyone can relate to and that we don't have to have these indicators one way or another. So I love that about the show. I love that they're both two little female dogs. Yeah, there's a number of aspects that I just think they've really, really done really well with in terms of how they've put this family together. I read that the child characters are voiced by the children of the production crew is that true? They're not well, sort of voice not just actors. Them. It's friends and family. Yeah. Some of them are voice actors, some of the little kids. I don't even know who they all are. They're very protective over mm-hmm. 
all of the kids. No one's credited. No, I noticed that, yeah. And I think that was just decided at the beginning um, just to protect small people, which I think is really wise in this industry. And also they didn't know it was going to blow up and be this like, massive international success. So it was smart, such a smart call from the beginning. They're all so talented. Like, oh, But kids are... I don't know, they they pick up things so quickly and they're so malleable. Like I do a little bit of um, acting coaching now and again and the kids in terms of accent work, in terms of their ability to pick stuff up, they're so much quicker than adults. Like kids are incredible. But some of them are not actually voice actors. That is incredible to me because they are all... Isn't that wild? Brilliant. Really good. And, and part of that is Joe as well because a lot of them are so young they can't read so he'll sort of be them to them like line read them to them and then they'll do it back to him so it's like this voiceover inception thing that's happening so that's also about joe or richie the other director really tuning in to who these kids are and then them sort of doing themselves back to them it's wild is that something that people commonly do with cartoons and and, and working with children is that I how i don't think works? there's a lot of necessarily kids in cartoons i think there's a lot of adults that's, that's do, what like, i thought yeah kids voices yeah. Like, i think of the simpsons like nancy cartwright mm. who plays bart and you know they're mainly adults but there is something magical about having actual little kids because there's something about that vocal quality that an adult can never get and I think that's one of the really beautiful things about this show. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know if it's a usual practice, uh, but they've, they've made something magic happen. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, I initially, and my mum said the same, initially just assumed that they were adults doing the voices. because would, because, because they're, they're so, so good. good. It's massively popular all over the world. It's very popular in, in Britain. We have, in, in Britain, we have, like, you know, quite a um, specific sense of humour, shall we say. I wondered how For you sure. feel, like, the, the British sense of humour and the Australian sense of humour compare. Is it I, kind I of similar, like, do you think? I, well, look, we, we started off as a, a British penal colony, so, like, there's got to be some <laughs> crossovers there. Um, I think I could be wrong, but there's a, a sort of level of wit that seems to be with the English and some, and more reserved and it's kind of easier in some ways to compare the English and the American um, senses of humour. Um, Americans feel very, very forward, very front foot, very, yes. you know, and that's, that's culturally, they had a war, they emancipated themselves. Like you can feel it in their culture, whereas there's something, I don't know, sort of more held and proper and sort of, less less front-footed in some ways about the English humour. And Australians are probably in some ways closer to the English. There's something a bit more laid back. There's something very pro-underdog about the Australian sense of humour, definitely punching up. I'm not really sure, but, I de- but it's interesting that Bluey has translated across, like, it's huge in America. It's, you know, going absolutely wild on Disney Plus over there. So whatever it is that Joe's managed to tap into, it, it is universal and does sort of seem to cross these cultural comical boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. So Bluey's back with season two on CBBS and the iPlayer as of August the first and then as of August the tenth, 
Season 3 will be premiering on Disney+. Plus. Could you ever have imagined how popular this would be when you got involved and, and when, when it started in 2018? You know, I don't think anyone could have predicted just how huge it's become. But when I saw the first, the pilot episode, I knew it was special. I knew it was like, my heart hurt because it was so cute and beautiful and real. And I I didn't know what to do with myself. I was like, this is ridiculous. I, I love this. <laughs> and so I knew, I knew that it was something I hadn't seen before, but I didn't know that everyone else would feel the same way. I imagine things have taken off for you a little bit since since Bluey started. What's next for you, as well as, I hope, making many, many, many more seasons of Bluey? I've been acting for a long time. This is my first sort of cartoon voice work, but I've done a, a lot of theatre, uh, quite a bit of film now. I'm actually leaving tomorrow <laughs> to go to the States to do another feature. And lots of different stuff. This one will be an action piece. I just did a sort of horror thriller period piece based around a young Edgar Allan Poe in Latvia last year and then a series of romance films I've done a a lot of theatre classics like Romeo and Juliet and Pygmalion and new works so my range is huge Um, and I love that I love that I get to do lots of lots of different things do you have a favorite in terms of like medium I guess for acting Um, no I love I like all of them for different reasons there's definitely pros and cons of all of them um but the thing about bluey that's so magical is i can do it anywhere in the world i've recorded bluey in florence italy in latvia and upstate new york in la just wherever i happen to be and i get into a booth and zoom in with the director so that's wonderful. And they're just such a joy to do. You get the scripts and usually I like laugh out loud and, you know, well up every script I read. Uh, and the team's so great. It's just, yeah, it's a it's a joy of a gig. And it's a joy to watch. So thank you all very much for making Bluey. We love it. Where can we follow you, Melanie, if we want to keep up to date with, with other things that you're up to? You can find me on Instagram at Melanie Zanetti. I think there's there's a few accounts. Mine's got the little blue tick. And that's kind of it. I try not to be on too many social medias or places. I it's hard. You know, they're they're necessary, but also I'm like, what am I doing to my brain on, <laughs> on my like phone yeah. and apps? I'm like, I used to sleep at night. Um, you know, I do get concerned about my concentration levels, like dropping um, and all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, trying to to limit that. But, yeah, you can find me there. OK, great. All right. So season two of Bluey is back on CBeebies and the iPlayer from August the 1st. And season three premieres on Disney Plus on August the 10th. Melanie, thank you so much for joining me to chat. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Eleanor Morton. Eleanor, hello. Hi. I was going to say comedian live from the Edinburgh Fringe, which is true, but isn't that much of a trek for you, is it? No, well, I was in London for a while, but yes, this is my hometown, so I'm back living here now. Good to be back. Yes, nice. I'm excited, actually. It's a much more me-sized town. 
I like London, but it is so fucking big, and nothing in Scotland gets remotely anywhere near that big. So, yeah, I think I'm more suited to something this size. Now then, Craig the tour guide who doesn't give a mm. fuck wherever he's working captured my heart on Twitter a while ago, oh. and your videos go crackers views wise on Twitter, and I believe also on TikTok. Your hot stuff there. I can't, I just can't learn another thing. How does it feel being what you call a reluctant online hip, what I'm going to call a social media sensation? (laughs) Well, yeah, I think the reluctant part is just sort of having done comedy for like a decade now and then suddenly being a bit more in the spotlight is is quite a weird change because uh, I'm quite used to doing like live shows and then just kind of going back to my normal stuff so now it feels a bit more exposed I guess which is great but also it's it's kind of weird when you you know you the, the first time my follower count went up it was sort of like oh my god like this is almost too much in a way it's sort of quite intense but yeah it's it's been um it's been really nice just to see people enjoying stuff I know that sounds very cliche and, and basic but honestly just people liking your stuff is all you want really so <laughs> if they do then that's great your online content is very much a pandemic silver lining, isn't it? Yeah, I have. I sort of talk about it on the show a bit that I'm doing here at the Fringe about how I feel a bit conflicted about, you know, the whole world going through this horrible time and me being one of the people that kind of benefited from that a bit, which <laughs> yeah. is, oh, that's something to wrestle with. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's difficult, but, you know, I wasn't doing anything else. So that's, that's, it sort of came out of the necessity of trying to keep creative when there was nothing to do and nowhere to go. There's a little video clip of you from about March 17th, 18th, 2020, and it's you, mm. and the, the title is Me as a Freelance Performer During COVID-19, and you do a series of facial expressions. Do you, <laughs> do you think you nailed those expressions? Would you do them differently? I can't even remember that one. Wow, that must have been ages ago. I'm a bit of an introvert. I don't know about you, but when I'm not performing, I quite like not going anywhere. So in a way, the pandemic was kind of nice because like as a comedian and a performer and a writer, you'll probably feel the same. Like you you feel like you've always got to be, for want of a better word, hustling and working and trying to get stuff done. So a kind of forced break through the pandemic was almost like a nice thing in a way, Mm -hmm. because, you know, if you're a freelancer, you, you have to set your own boundaries and you never feel like you're working enough. So when it's so when the world says actually you literally can't work anymore, it was almost a relief in a way. But uh, also keeping in mind that uh, the pandemic was terrible, and you know I'm I'm sad it happened. Suzanne Primate is another regular character, and yeah. there's often a historical bent to your content. Are you yeah. a, a big history buff? Yeah, I'm a massive history nerd. I love history. I love edutainment. I think that's what I love watching and what I love doing. So stuff that's fun and funny, but I I feel like I'm learning something. Uh, I don't actually think my stuff really makes anyone learn anything. But yeah, the the Suzanne Primate stuff was sort of born out of loving history, but also finding certain elements of the way people present it quite hilarious. You know, the the overuse of the Tudors, um, (laughs) the Jack the Ripper, sensationalism, all that stuff. I've always loved history and I grew up with like, you know, the Terry Deary horrible history books and all that stuff. So I really like, I like looking at the really dark bits of history in a very light way. I think that's my kind of Mm. sense of humour is quite dark like that. 
I'm really into social history, like people's everyday lives, I think are really fascinating, like completely different from ours and yet also very, very similar. And, you know, also, you know, during the pandemic, it was like, you know, when was the last time we went through this? And that was sort of the closest was kind of 1665, which was when London had the Great Plague and they had to quarantine. And uh, so, yeah, I just I like looking at the parallels and I like mucking around and diving into my own weird niche specific stuff. You know, the good thing about the Internet is that you find an audience for stuff like that. Yeah, totally. And the joy of Suzanne Primate, the one that I really, I mean, there's lots that I really love, but the the Jack the Ripper one, which you've mentioned, is excellent. The only detail is that she's a woman talking, whereas it would usually be a bloke. And she just goes, I don't have a degree in criminology. I don't have a degree in forensics. (laughs) I don't have a degree in history, but I still have an opinion. And it's so beautifully observed for all of these people who are just like, hang on, I am a two minute expert on this. Yeah, my, um, my sister's doing a PhD that looks at the... I think it's really cool, but it sounds incredibly grim. Um, the sexualization of the female corpse in dark tourism, which basically means looking at things like Jack the Ripper and how the victims of that have been sexualized. And, you know, we use their pictures without their permission, the pictures of their bodies and things. It's very grim, but really interesting. And so me and her are very, we're very into gory history like that and looking at the way in which Jack the Ripper specifically has a hilarious canon around it, a very interesting intense people who are absolutely obsessed with this thing that actually is we're never going to solve and it's it's kind of just a bit silly so I I think yeah I think I'm interested in the people who get drawn to that as well because they can often be very eccentric and very interesting there's a guy um you know there's a guy who claimed he'd found the DNA proved who the the ripper was and he hadn't and the um the scientist who said that he'd found the DNA that matched this this suspect turned out he'd gotten one letter wrong in the DNA code and actually the DNA he'd found matches like 99% of people on the planet <laughs> so things like that it's very funny and farcical there's a guy who's descended from another serial killer who wrote a whole book about how he thinks this guy is, is the killer and as an industry I think it's really interesting because it's a bit like comedy it just draws in massive characters who are uh, very interesting to look at and funny Okay, let's move offline into real life. Tell us about Mm. your fringe show. Eleanor Morton has peaked. It's about me. I was going to call it Shehalian, which is the name of a mountain I climbed in 2020. But my agent said that I couldn't use a Scottish word because people would get confused. So no Scottish. (laughs) No, she said, no, that's not fair. She was, uh, she's really nice about it. But she was like, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe a title people We'll, we'll know what it is. Put your name in it, Eleanor. We just want you to put your name in it. Yeah, yeah, basically. So it's called Eleanor Morton's Peaks. Mountain-themed humour, but not really. It's kind of mostly about what I did or didn't do during the pandemic. It's not really about the pandemic as much as it's about feeling a bit useless and a bit stuck for a whole period of your life. And also, I think, the guilt that comes with not doing anything, which I think is quite a British mm, thing. Totally, feeling, yeah. Yeah, feeling bad. But also many jokes, I want to emphasise as well. <laughs> I feel like when we comedians describe fringe shows, we always describe the themes and things, and that often doesn't make it sound very funny, but I promise it's also funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a lot of your stuff. I can wholeheartedly believe it's very funny. Thank you. Are you blending sketch characters and stand-up? A tiny bit, yeah. It's mostly stand-up, but there is there is sort of, I guess, vignettes in there. I've always sort of done bits and pieces with, like, tiny bits of character or sketchy bits within it but um it is mostly 
stand up and I am also doing a Craig show Ooh. Craig the tour guide yeah I'm doing two dates of, of that just two the first one sold out so the second one is the 22nd and we've still got tickets for that and that's at the stand so that will be character and that's kind of a brand new thing for me because I've never done him live obviously a whole hour of Craig yeah, hold on, Craig. <laughs> uh, see if um, see if the energy can uh, can keep up. <laughs> that is that is quite a flat energy for you to maintain <laughs> for an hour. Well, I think I when I was younger, anyway, I used to be a bit more deadpan with my stand up as well. So I think I quite like playing with that kind of low energy stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. And also, like sometimes I crack up when I'm filming it, so I hope I don't crack up when I'm performing it because that would kind of ruin the ruin the thing but we'll see this is your first Edinburgh show obviously because of circumstances since Twitter and TikTok went full mental right Mm. yes are you seeing a difference in your audiences well we're two days in but I think definitely people there's definitely I know there's definitely people who come because of they've seen me online yes and I think you know, I've had quite nice ticket sales, which is great. And I assume that's also because of that, which is lovely. But I think I just, it's early days, so I'll have to see how much that actually affects, you know, the show. But definitely, I'm aware that people are more aware of who I am, which is, it's just nice. But also kind of weird, because I, I quite like being quite anonymous during the Fringe. I quite like doing my show and then I'll just wander off and, you know, I'll find like some home friends or, you know, I'll go, go and see my mum or something. And uh, now I'm a bit more like, can I can I just hang around doing something weird, or will people know who I am now and be like, what is she doing? The latter, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Do it anyway. Yeah, no, I will, I will. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing seeing who turns up. I think. You've also got a short film at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. I do. That yeah. Is very exciting. Can you tell yeah. us a bit about Deloping? Yes, sure. So it's a film. I did with Lola Rose Maxwell, who also went viral with sketches she does with Stevie Martin. Oh, yes. Excellent. And we were approached by Tom Muir and John Olaf Stoke, who are the director and the writer, the writer and the director, respectively. They'd seen us online and, and thought these parts would be good for us. So it's, it's, a, it's a short film set in the 18th century about based on a true story about two women who decide to have a duel to settle our arguments and we filmed it last October and it was really really fun to shoot we did it all in the Welsh countryside in insane weather and it was great fun and I'm really excited that it's it's going to get shown so also very convenient that the festival is during the Edinburgh Fe- the Fringe Festival as well so because it used to be in June yes I reckon they moved it because TV producers couldn't be bothered coming to Scotland more than once a year. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So that'd be great. So yeah. Um, so my friends will be in town and we're going to go see it. And, uh, it's part of a, it's part of a collection of short films being shown on the 17th that are all about Britain and weird kind of stuff about Britain and identity and things like that. So yeah, I'm excited. Amazing. Will there be a chance for people who aren't at the festival to watch it anywhere? Yeah, I, I really hope so. I assume so. I need to check that with John because um, there's been people inquiring. It's also going to be at a couple of other festivals, which is great. Bolton and another one that I don't think has been announced yet. Yes, the second I know that I will let people know Amazing. because uh, I think it'd be great to be able to see show it to people. As an Edinburgh native, 
Mm. What is your hot non-fringe, non-festivals tip for visitors? Oh my god! Oh, okay. Oh, that's a tricky one. For a good time, um, <laughs> I don't know. None of the stuff I like doing is, is stuff uh, anyone else would like doing. I like to go out to East, East Lothian. is is not Edinburgh, but it's it's a really nice bus ride, car ride away, and it's got lovely beaches and it's nice and kind of rural and pretty. And there's lots of ruined castles, and that's a great day out without going all the way to the Highlands. And also, the Firth of Forth has great uh, day cruises where you can go see all the seabirds, puffins, uh, and you can see whales and dolphins and stuff. That's always fun. Although right now there isn't an avian flu epidemic, so actually, maybe don't do that. Um, <laughs> We've got enough pandemics and epidemics. Yeah, I know, I know. It's, it's all, it's all um, happening at once. But uh, that's what I like doing. Mm-hmm. I love Greyfriars Graveyard. It's my favourite graveyard. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I used to love, I actually used to love hanging out there. It sounds weird. No, um, no, I used to do the same. It was a nice, quiet place. But now it's absolutely rammed with uh, Harry Potter tour guides. And it is, yeah, it's a bit annoying. And there's a lot of, not grave desecration, but there's a lot of people pawing at stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's all just a bit, a bit busy and manic and a bit sad because as much as I'm sure Harry Potter's bought a load of money to Edinburgh, it's also kind of eating itself a bit, so much of it that it mm-hmm. can't really sustain that. So, so yeah, I love Greyfriars, but maybe not a peak tourist season. Go go on a really rainy day when, when no one else is there. And you've got to look at the guy. There's a guy, I think he's, when, when you come in, it's on the right, and he's just sort of really loose. The statue of him is really loose <laughs> yeah. on the coffin. I fucking love that guy. <laughs> yeah, there's some really fun graves there, which is a weird sentence, but no, no, it's, it's a great it's the correct sentence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Eleanor Morton has peaked is at Monkey Barrel Comedy's Carnival Two venue at twelve forty p.m. until August the twenty eighth. And you just said there is a Craig show still with tickets. Craig the tour guide at the stand. Did you say on the twenty second of August? Twenty second of August, stand one at. 20 past 8. I'm assuming in the evening, because that would yeah. be mental. <laughs> oh, my God. That's the kind of thing Craig would do, though, like do it at 8am to get it done. <laughs> Where can people find out more about what you're up to and enjoy some of those sweet, sweet viral hits? Everything I have done is on YouTube, so that's an easy place to find it, just Eleanor Morton on YouTube. And then I tweet out everything on Eleanor Morton on Twitter, and you can find all the same stuff again on Instagram and TikTok. Most of my updates are on Twitter and Instagram. So if you want to know about live shows and things, that's where you can find that. And I have a website that I need to update. So maybe that'll give you some information, but Twitter is probably your best bet. Finally, uh, I think I speak for a lot of people when I ask, actually, you were worried about them earlier, but more blooper reels because joy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, I'll, I'll 100%. I'm thinking maybe about setting up a patreon which would potentially have access to that but i don't know if i can be bothered to be honest so watch this space (laughs) (laughs) eleanor thank you so so much for chatting with me thank you for having me you play ball like a girl go on do one kid jenny off the blocks 
Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we slide across the pitch in celebration of all things women's sport. I was off last week, which meant that I didn't have the opportunity to talk about the Lionesses and their incredible victory in the Women's Euro. Obviously, this story is now like 10 days old if you're listening on Wednesday, so I'm not going to wang on about it too much now, just to say that obviously I am thrilled and still in a state of slight disbelief. I'm going to level with you now. Despite the pre-tournament hyperbole, I did not think that we would win it. I thought we could, but I didn't actually think that we would. And maybe that was unfair. Maybe it's because football is a cruel mistress. And look, we've all been hurt before, haven't we? After watching the opening match, in which we were kind of shit against Austria, I became convinced that that is all it was, just hype. No way were we going to win this tournament. Now, I tried not to make this too well known, either on this podcast or my own social media. I held back a little bit because there were very positive vibes about the whole tournament and I didn't want to shit on anyone's picnic. But as it went on, we played exceptionally well and Wiegmann's game plan just seemed to keep on working. So, you know, you do start to dare to dream a little bit. I thought Germany played superbly throughout the tournament. I think they played superbly in the final. Either team would have been very worthy victors in my view, but obviously I'm glad that it was us and not them. So what are we taking from the tournament? Well, here's what I think. And I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here, but I I don't think that spectatorship at WSL matches is going to experience sustained or prolonged growth unless some issues are addressed. And I wrote about this for The Independent last week, so I'm not going to just regurgitate the same points here. I'll reshare a link on my Twitter at InspiraGen. But the bottom line is you can't ever fill a stadium if you're not allowed to play in one. So... Things need to change now, in my view. We've proved we have the talent, the skill, that the demand is there. Give us a fucking break, lads, or piss off and let us do it on our own. If you want to reap the financial rewards of tapping into our fan base and selling shit to little girls as well as little boys, now is the time to back us. The WSL kicks off again on September the 10th. The fixtures have been announced already and the tickets are available. You know what to do. Back to Birmingham now, where England have secured a record number of medals in the Commonwealth Games. One of those was a silver in the Lawn Bowls pairs. Well done, Amy Farrow, who I interviewed for the podcast a couple of weeks ago. In total, we bagged 176, two more than our last best effort at Glasgow in 2014, though one gold medal fewer. Scotland took 51, a couple less than in Glasgow. Northern Ireland won a record 18, and Wales were a little bit under their previous record record of 36 with 28 but generally speaking the picture is pretty good for sport in the UK. A few highlights for us Brits. Ailish McColgan, daughter of Liz, won the gold in the 10,000 metres for Scotland. Laura Kenny won gold for England in the scratch race over in the velodrome. And for Wales, Rosie Eccles was victorious in the women's light middleweight boxing, having won silver in the welterweight category four years ago. One thing I think is a little bit sad is that it kind of gets treated like the poor man's Olympics and some of our biggest stars decided to take some rest rather than compete. Dina Asher-Smith, Max Whitlock, Tom Daly, for example, while others in the athletics field swerved it because the Diamond League was competing elsewhere. Like, who schedules those two events at the same time? That's crazy to me. Anyway, let's quickly take a look at tennis because something exciting has happened in Toronto. Ahead of the US Open, 
Open, which gets underway in New York at the end of the month. Serena Williams has won her first singles match in over a year after beating Nuria Parizas to progress to the second round. Okay, that doesn't sound terribly exciting. It's just the opening round, and who the F is Parisis anyway? Well, she's the world number 347. But Williams is currently the world number 407, so technically that's an upset. I so, so, so want her to get that 24th Grand Slam title before she retires. So look, I'll take this win, and I'm going to run with it. That's all from me this week, and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated, Jen. (laughs) Why am I doing that? Well, Mick, you are doing that because this week we watched, what a tune, we watched 1997's The Full Monty, probably the next film after Trainspotting to help establish Robert Carlyle, who plays central character Gary slash Gaz, as a kind of leading man in a feature film. The film is directed by Peter Cataneo and written by Simon Beaufoy, with the latter seemingly enjoying the spoils of this film rather more than the former. He went on to adapt Slumdog Millionaire to name but one, winning him the Oscar in 2008. There you go, fact fans. As well as Carlisle, the film stars Mark Addy, Steve Hewison, who I never recognised as Coronation Street's Eddie Windass until writing this. He's my mate, Steve Hewison. We worked together at Harrogate Theatre, yeah. He's a very good artist. Well, he was he was great as Eddie Windus. Anyway, Hugo Spear, Paul Barber and Hollywood big hitter Tom Wilkinson. Uh, not at that point he wasn't. No, he wasn't. I, yeah. He went on to be. Leslie Sharp and Emily Worth also make appearances. The film is set in a Thatcher-ravaged Sheffield, once home to a thriving steel industry, which saw the losses of thousands of jobs as the steel mills were closed down. Gary and his pal Dave are casualties of this downturn failing to find work and signing on at the job centre. Gaz can't afford to pay his child maintenance to ex-Mandy and owes her 700 quid in arrears for their son, Nathan, whom he is at risk of losing access to. Gaz sees an opportunity when he spots a queue of women outside a club waiting to watch 90s marker of gender equality and Ron Seal pushes <laughs> the Chippendales. I'm wondering if watch is actually the right verb there. I felt like it was just like ravage, <laughs> waiting to ravage, maul, maybe. Maul. Definitely watching with all three eyes, including the one in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> this is where the film has always fallen down for me a little bit. The premise being that women would pay good money to see Gaz's todger, but fuck it, why not? He wonders as he sees these women, he could do that, right? It's not that hard. Shortly thereafter, Gaz and Dave meet Lomper, a former security guard from the steel mill where they used to work, whilst he is in the act of attempting to kill himself in his car. After preventing him from doing so, he joins their motley crew. They're also joined by Gerald, a man from the job centre with a keen interest in ballroom dancing, who's been lying to his wife day in, day out for months, suiting up to leave the house as if he were going to work. They recruit Horse, who doesn't have a big penis, but can dance relatively well despite being 8,012 years old. Uh, and It's not working in the sense that it's not working. <laughs> I love that he has to do that from a telephone box as well. Uh, I didn't remember that scene at all. That, that felt like a new scene to me. Anyway, and Guy, who can't dance, but does have a massive wang. So... 
Much like the Spice Girls, all men are represented <laughs> here. Our unlikely heroes set about putting together a show the likes of which Sheffield may never have seen. There's a lot going on here. The film touches on mental health, body image, LGBTQ plus issues, unemployment, father's rights, and all of this under the all-encompassing theme of masculinity. Perhaps the fact that it does it with a fairly light touch in a, in a lot of those kind of themes is why it did so well. Or perhaps there really are that many women out there who wanted to see Gaz's Todger. Although something I found amusing while writing this was that if you Google the full Monty, it says people also searched for Striptease, the 1996 Demi Moore nudity vehicle. And I thought you have definitely missed the point if you're putting these two films <laughs> in the same bracket. I'd have thought Showgirls. Seriously. Or Magic Mike. (laughs) What a genre. Anyway, the film was something of a surprise success. Critics liked it, the box office liked it, making a whopping $258 million from a budget of $3.5 million. Whoa, that's amazing. That is a lot, isn't it? That's way more. I knew that it was big at the time and I knew that it was big in America when people didn't really expect it to be. What is a Sheffield, asked America? (laughs) It was like the very definition of a sleeper hit, as in it actually didn't make most of its money till it had already been at the cinema for about two months. And award season liked it too. It won the BAFTA for Best Film in 1997, beating Titanic, Fair and LA Confidential, which I expect you guys both have views on. It was nominated for four Oscars and it won one Best Original Musical or Comedy Score for Anne Dudley. Now, I do have some things that I want to talk about specifically, but first of all, and I suspect I already know the answer to this, but in time on a tradition, have you both watched it and did you like it back in 1997? I saw it at the cinema. I saw it because I read a thing about it and I thought it sounded a bit like Brassed Off and I quite like those sort of films, so I went to see it. Hannah, you need to you need to describe what sort of film it is in true Hannah lingo. Yeah, well, I mean, I was just going to say, I did immediately go home and tell my mum that she, she would like it and go to, like... I When I saw it, I knew what people I knew would like it. It is, what what did I call it? It's a multi-generational ensemble cast in a comedy drama set against the backdrop of industrial strife or decline. A titled comedy drama with (laughs) multi-generational ensemble cast set against the backdrop of industrial strife or decline. Okay, that is, I was pretty close to what I said then. Yeah, I mean, I love those sort of films. Made in Dagenham, Pride. I mean, it's a very British genre. Mm -hmm. And so you liked this? I thought it was enjoyably, terribly plotted fluff. Okay. Mick, what about you? So The Full Monty came out when I'd been living in Sheffield for a year, and I didn't actually see it in the cinema. I I think I, I didn't see it till it came out on what would have then been, oh yeah, DVD, I guess, VHS DVD. And yeah, so I really love seeing Sheffield in it. I think it's great. And I do really like it. I think it's a very gentle film. Like everything about it is touched on really quite gently. It's gently funny. It's, you know, it's just gently making social commentary. It's very enjoyable. But the one thing that has always bothered me is the end. And the freeze frame when they're all throwing the hats in the air and the wangs out for all of the women to look at with the, all three eyes. And I'm like, so what happens next? So they all just like awkwardly put their clothes back on. They don't have any more dances. People have paid a tenner to watch one dance. <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> Less than five minutes. 
If people have paid a tenner, Mick, how are they making £10,000? People must have paid loads more than a tenner. Because, yeah, the guy says, I've sold 200 tickets. I think that is a so far. Yeah. But I also think yeah. Robert Carlyle's character, Gaz, has massively overestimated capacity in that little pub, to be honest with you. Just just one of several plot holes. But also, what do they do after that? Like, that is, that's not a career. <laughs> No, no, because the thing is, most of the people have gone to watch them to sort of laugh at them, haven't they? So that's not going to work outside of their immediate community, is it, in the same no. way, I don't think. So I think you're right, Mick, it's, it's an unsustainable option. <laughs> and also, I was like, £2,000 between, what, six of you? You're not actually going to pay back your child support. No, it's not that, I mean, and say maybe Tom Wilkerson doesn't take the money. And Lumper doesn't take the money because they've already got jobs or something. It's still nothing at the maths in this film do not (laughs) add up at all. The maths and, like you say, the future. Like, I don't get why Mark Addy thinks that no job is better than a job in Asda. Yeah. There's a lot about male pride there and obviously working with steel, manly job. And I'm not into gendered roles in any way. I think they're sort of horseshit. But there was that male pride that came with working in a hard industry like steel, like Sheffield was made of steel. And then to go to work at Asda, a supermarket, if they put him on the tills, I might be like, okay. But he's in security, also traditionally a male role. So, you know, take off your cling film, get back in the supermarket. Yeah, and providing a wage for his family, traditionally, you know, a male role. Well, I think that's quite interesting. I think in a lot of reviews that I read also allude to the same kind of thing, that this film is actually quite an interesting study in kind of like, not really gender equality, but perhaps like gender dynamics Mm. or or gender roles. And there's certainly a lot in this film, I think, about how the men have kind of lost their pride or dignity through unemployment, right? Mm. But one review I read said that this film sees women as the enemy, which I thought was unfair And I wondered what you guys thought about that. I think it definitely sees women as different. You know, it makes generalisations about women. Because I would not go and see men take their clothes off and pay money for it. And I would even less go and see men I knew take their clothes off and pay money for it. I'd rather just give them the money. If you for any sort of time, you have to see that without wanting to. Well, exactly that. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I can't tell you how many comedians' penises I've seen without wanting Mm. to. I mean, I think it's quite ahead of its time in the sense that it it actually discusses the fact that men have body image issues. I can't think of any film that discussed that, or certainly any mainstream film that discussed that quite as early or as much as The Full Monty did. So I would say in some ways it sort of blurs the gender line, as in it, it shows that women can be the people holding families together and men can be the ones who are obsessed about their bodies Mm -hmm. no i agree with you and because there are a few bits in this film that i saw and i was a bit like really and i thought oh this is this is bad but then it would later come back to address them like the thing with horse for example oh is he called horse because he's got a massive dick yeah and then he's in the phone box being like oh the thing doesn't work um the 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 penis enlarging (laughs) in the sense that it's not working it's not working (laughs) And like the way they kind of like objectify women or they're a bit gross with women and then they come back to Dave who's like, well, let's fucking hope they're not looking at us yes, like that. Yes, that's hey. a really mm. cool scene, actually. I think it's a really good scene where they're all up in Gerald's bedroom uh, having a go on the sun lounger and looking at a Playboy type magazine. And Lumper, who is gay, is clearly trying to be one of the lads and starts mm. commenting on a woman's body. And yeah, that whole conversation of, well, I hope they're nicer to us. 
they might not be and it is brilliant that it sees men discussing that maybe objectifying women isn't isn't great and what if the tables were turned i also think along with what hannah said about addressing um body issues it addresses mental health issues that whole thing about yeah. suicide and obviously as we know men of that age are really like the most vulnerable to suicide and they do it in such a, a warm light-hearted manner in that they rescue him and then immediately just come up with other ways he could do it <laughs> it's just like yeah. they tease him and it is that showing that men don't necessarily know how to talk about it in the way that women traditionally are seen to be able to do and all of this is massively in inverted commas because they are the roles that we've been given and you know social conditioning is one hell of a drug but they want to do something they want to do something they're trying they're all trying to talk to each other which I think is, you know, again, yeah, pretty ahead of its time. They're pretty nonplussed about Lumper and uh, what's his face, Hugo Spears' current guy. Yeah, the lunchbox. They're quite, they're quite <laughs> nonplussed about him being gay as well. That's something they just take on board. And given that actually Gaz has been quite openly homophobic yeah, yeah. earlier on in it, I think that. Gaz is a bit of a problematic character. Yeah, mm. totally. Because he's a bell end to his ex and to his child, and he's he's. I don't think he's a bell end to his ex. I think he's he's a, a dad who clearly, he owes clearly quite a lot loves of money. his kid, but is terrible at dadding. I find him probably the hardest to sympathise with. I mean, yeah, yeah I agree yeah, totally. I'm one hundred percent Lumper. I love him. Really? I just think he's. Oh, I think he's lovely. He looks after his mum. He's, he's in a brass he's, band. He's obviously been in for years and years and he finally gets to go out. Apart from, obviously, the suicide attempt, actually, he's generally the happiest out of all of them. That bit where they play oh, the Patricia stripper. the Stripper for him. And he's yeah. so chuffed that he's part of the group. It's it's delightful. And he gets the funniest line, which is when Horse yeah. says, are people going to be looking at my willy? And he says, your willy, my willy. <laughs> And that just makes me laugh every single time. But as previously discussed with Hannah on this particular note, it's funnier because it's in a northern accent. It wouldn't work in a southern accent. Your willy, my willy. <laughs> and I tested this out by getting Gary to say it, who is a southerner, and it's true. It's true, it wasn't as funny. I never really thought about this film before, which is stupid because there is like a really central theme that runs through it about like body image and body positivity or whatever. But I do think it's quite interesting that it spawned this kind of body positivity TV spin-off. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I've never watched it, I'd like to add. I'm just aware of it happening. It's on ITV, Hannah, so I know you won't have watched it. (laughs) Where like quote-unquote celebrities, male and female, do like a sort of striptease thing. Do they do the full Monty? Do they leave their hats on? (laughs) I'm pretty sure they do leave their hats on. I I mean, it's not a literally fair comparison because, as we all know, women are way more forgiving of that stuff. Some women find a guy, or not find it attractive, but certainly don't find it unattractive, that a guy might be Tom Wilkinson's age or Mark Addy's size. Yeah, yeah, dad bod. Do you know mm. what I mean? Whereas the direct opposite for women, would it would certainly not be so joyously received, I don't think. Calendar Girls, I think, is potentially a similar vibe. I wouldn't include that in that thing because that's middle-class women fighting cancer, which doesn't quite fit into my... No, uh, you your know, handily titled box. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, I get. It. I just mean like they're different shapes and sizes to what you would usually expect. Because obviously the Chippendales yeah. aren't Tom Wilkinson's age or Horse's age or you know Mark Addy's size, and that's what they're kind of going up against. 
they're not but that's kind of what they're going up against yeah there's some really lovely bits i think of full monty that are iconic and the the bit in the doll queue where they all start yeah. dancing last that scene is like 30 seconds long but i fucking love it it is so beautifully done and it's beautiful because it is only just that it's just 30 seconds they don't like hammer it home or anything like i say everything's really quite gentle and fast and moves on it's an hour and a half perfect length for a I know, film which i love it just gets the job done you yeah. know the build-ups of that enormous plot hole it gets there fast it gets there with good humor <laughs> it gets there with great characters everyone's really well drawn even though it moves so fast tom wilkinson is fucking excellent and actually yeah, he agreed. has my favorite line which is when they're in his lounge and gaz goes right let's get our kit off and he goes what here now in this house this is a good area this is <laughs> that makes me laugh so much but also going back to what you said about gaz being a bit of a prick i think it is unforgivable that they tried to scupper his job interview i'm still annoyed with yes. them about yeah, it yeah yeah furious mm. absolutely furious and that he encourages mark addy to drop a job yeah and walk out of a job when clearly having a job will always be preferable to not having a job yeah and he's like teaching his kid how to steal and put he puts nathan into some genuinely dangerous mm. situations like when they're nicking the steel from the factory and then they get stuck on a canal and yeah nathan gets away and they get stranded and it is very funny but at the same time it's like he clearly loves his kid but i just don't think it compensates for the fact that he's, he's really quite bad at dadding mm. yeah yeah, and maths. And, and indeed maths and dancing, if we're honest. <laughs> yeah, but he can do sewing. Yeah. He can, jail. You can't arrange a funeral in two days. I mean, that just really jars. I don't know why they feel the need to set this over such a short period of time that they then do have to do stuff like that, whereas Mark Addy gets a job in a day. He's got contacts in Asda, though. I know that's not how it works at supermarkets, but... Maybe it did more in the 90s. I think the short time frame is so that they can't bottle out. If they'd stretched out them having to rehearse over like four weeks, it would never happen. It is the tight deadline that means the five minute dance happens. And also that Tom Wilkinson can get the job at the end of it, which obviously wouldn't have dragged on for that long. I don't know why they practice so many routines to so many different songs, except for the value of the soundtrack. When... I think it's because they're going to awkwardly put their clothes back on and go again, Hannah. <laughs> Do it again, yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, well, I've, I've seen your cock now. But there's going to be no bigger finale than that. Certainly not in guys' It is case. weird that they just decide on the night to get the dicks out like it is weird that he's like all right well look we're gonna do this and it's like no one has asked you to do that like, why why have you suddenly decided to go one better than the chippendales that's that's why they do yeah. it to go one better than the chippendales i think that should have been their marketing ploy rather than they're like well since you're here and no one's asked we're gonna get our wangs out it's worth pointing out as well that they did actually do that and they did that scene once so well done recording that in you know, and getting it all right in one go. And somebody really thoughtfully places almost like a light yeah. flare on Tom Wilkinson's yeah. bottom. Yeah. So it covers it up a little bit. But yeah, they did actually do it, which I don't think is necessarily actors probably way more likely to do that than a lot. But, you know, well done for actually pulling that scene together in one shot, which is what they said they would do it I was in. really hoping you were going to use the phrase pulling it off there, Hannah. Yeah, well, <laughs> obviously. Right. Well, I think I know what the answer to this is going to be on the basis of this discussion. But I will ask the question regardless. Rated or dated? Rated. Yeah, I'm going to say I'm going to say it's rated. 
I do you know what in the first five minutes I really thought I was going to be like this is dated but uh, yeah rated well done them in fair, fairness Jen the first five minutes are a video of a documentary about Sheffield from like the 70s so that is quite dated <laughs> all right maybe not the first five minutes the first ten <laughs> Whose go is it next? I know whose go it is next and I've seen what it's going to be and I'm excited. It's my pick and we are going to be watching Dirty Dancing. Oh my God. I have never seen Dirty Dancing. Will we have the time of our lives? I think I know the answer for both of you. Standard issue for all women.